This is Unseen Unknown. I'm Jasmine Bina. In today's house episode, Jean-Louis and I are going to be talking about brand strategy in the time of coronavirus. Right now, as we're recording this, we are four weeks into self-isolation and quarantine. It's been a really crazy four weeks and everything is changing by the day. But it's important that we have this discussion because there are companies out there right now that have no idea what to do. And I think we're at a point where we have some idea about what's around the corner and what we should be doing about it. It's hard to talk about brand strategy and culture without talking about the future. And it's hard to talk about the future without making some predictions. So we're going to rest this discussion on one big prediction, and that is that the quarantine is going to last longer than four months. This conversation is just as much about understanding where things are going as it is about figuring out how we navigate today. We've given this some thought. We don't want to be over-optimistic, but we don't want to fearmonger either. It's just important that we explore these ideas because they need to be explored, and we need to kind of figure out our direction forward together. Let's not talk about the basic stuff, like how you should turn off your short-term promotions, maybe not do any new product launches or change your ad mix. Let's consider all of those knowns that are at a baseline. Let's talk about some of the more complicated, morally complex questions around us and what a company needs to do to survive in these changing circumstances. I want to start off this episode by painting a picture of where Jean-Louis and I are right now. We are sitting on our living room floor with all of our podcast equipment spread out. It is 12.15 in the morning. I'm watching my children sleep in our bedroom on the baby monitor, and we are surrounded by baby toys. And I think that this image is a really good encapsulation of how much our lives have changed in the last four weeks and what that means for business. Or to put this another way, when everything is so chaotic in the world, and not just the big outside world, but also our internal, private, smaller worlds, what are brands even supposed to be doing right now? Because everything is topsy-turvy. And this is an interesting discussion because it's a lot about how our relationships to different things are changing. And I think the first thing we should really talk about here is our relationship with the home, how our relationship with the home is changing. For some of us, our living rooms are now daycares or classrooms for our children. Our bedrooms have become our offices. Our kitchens have become cafes where we're constantly frequenting because we're at home and what else is there to do? We're moving furniture around. We're putting stuff up on walls. Things that felt like they were temporary changes are becoming more permanent changes. And this is where I think this story kind of starts. If we're going to understand how brand strategy is changing in accordance with actual consumer lives, it does need to start in the home. Yeah, it's, it's, I think what's kind of fascinating when we talk about our relationship with the home is really kind of our relationship with ourselves. Because what's happening is we're becoming a lot more self-reliant than we used to. You know, for some of us, maybe cooking is a frontier that we never really pushed, but now we're kind of forced to, we don't have a choice. Um, you know, laundry, maybe you went to the laundromat or the dry cleaners and now you have to do it yourself. Even kind of being a handyman at home when something's broken, you can't just ask someone to fix it now. You have to do it yourself. And so I think we're starting to see that the roles we play in our homes are changing and we've kind of been forced to give ourselves permissions where we used to say, oh, I'll just get a cleaner and they'll take care of it. Now it's, you know, there's no backup. We have to do it ourselves. So 
we're starting to maybe see ourselves a little differently and tell ourselves a different story. And that could last a long time. I mean, that's a self-perception that really over the next month or maybe quite a few months is really going to start to become ingrained that actually maybe we're capable of more than we thought. I think what you're talking about is self-reliance, yeah. right? So this is the weird thing about self-reliance. Like, I feel like I'm constantly in this situation looking for contradictions. And I feel like I see one here. We have this belief that like, okay, we can do it. We can be self-reliant. We see all of our peers online, like so many videos of people like creating lesson plans for their kids or creating new recipes or, you know, dare I say, baking bread or, you know, everybody's like new office setup or Jesus, like the, the workout videos, which I would be really, really happy to like never see again. I don't need to see people <laughs> doing yoga in their living rooms, but you know, there's this kind of surf story above the surface about how, yeah, man, we're getting by, we're doing this. But like, you can't deny that, like, actually, there's a lot of friction in the home. Mm -hmm. Nothing is where it's supposed to be physically. And we're expected to relax where we work and work where we relax, which we already know is not a good practice and is not something that you can kind of negotiate. And we are going to be stuck in this state of literal dis-ease for months on end. And I always tell people there's a brand opportunity when somebody is telling themselves a lie. And this is a lie that we're telling ourselves here. There's an opportunity for brands to help people bridge the gap between who they perceive themselves as and who they actually are when it comes to the home space. I don't think I've seen too many brands actually do this too well right now. I think we're in a stage where a lot of brands are kind of like giving you permission, like you were describing. Brands like Brella or other kind of like childcare or parenting brands teaching you how to create play spaces for your kids or a lot of professional brands and accounts out there helping people cope with how to create workspaces. I've seen so many email newsletters about how to create an itinerary for your day as if any family can follow an itinerary and how crazy the world is right now. But, you know, this is the beginning. I think there will be brands that can come in and help us actually revise the story in our heads so that we don't feel this disconnect between what we want to be and who we actually are. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point that like really, you know, we are faced with this huge challenge of renegotiating our home spaces. And obviously the immediate demand is to find balance, right? To find some level of workable compromise. I think at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of compromise going on. Our homes are just not equipped to do all the things that they suddenly need to do. You know, we spent maybe half of our week in our homes in aggregate and a good portion of that was asleep. So now, you know, there's a, there's a whole new function and so balance is this huge demand. And you're right, over the next month or two, we'll probably see a lot of content to service that. I think what's especially interesting here is that when we talk about yoga and working out and these kind of activities that we have to make space for, it's always like, yeah, I could work out at home, but I'd much rather get a gym membership. And so now, like, we want to kind of follow and continue these habits of working out and taking care of ourselves. And we're having to figure out how to do it in our homes. And I wonder after this is all sort of said and done, how this is going to impact these kind of going back out into the world. Like, are we all going to go back out and get gym memberships just like we did? Or are some of us going to stay on our Peloton bikes and kind of keep it going at home? Are we going to kind of renegotiate a lot of these seeming sort of fundamentals in our behaviors? And what routines? do you think? 
I think that we're going to be a lot more intentional about how we kind of act and behave afterwards. I think, especially when it comes to kind of food and maybe the services that we get, because we're going to feel more self-reliant, we're going to feel that, you know, if we're going to do it, we're, we're going to do it when we need to do it. And so I think we're going to maybe make more of going out to eat. And maybe the hope is that we do kind of possibly fewer but better things, right? We go to fewer restaurants, but we make sure they really count. We, we hire fewer kind of handyman or service providers, but we make sure that that's when we really need it because we can handle the rest. And with exercising, I think that, you know, maybe um, there'll be a good portion that actually finds a, a manageable level of balance at working out at home, for example. So they'll stay at home and maybe you find that others will be much more intentional and look for personal trainers because they know exactly what they want to get out of it. So I think the main, my main assumption here is that we will be more specific and more in, in, more directional about these behaviors when we come out of this. But I, th I think that the real subtext is that this is, this is just going to change the way we see ourselves and how we operate. Yeah. You know, something else that I was thinking about as we started to talk about this was the fact that we have old scripts in our head that are really hard to take apart. And I have a perfect example of this. And, and a lot of these scripts are in the home. So I've been buying so much dish, dish soap lately and I couldn't understand why. I thought maybe it was because I was buying new brands and maybe the soap wasn't like as concentrated or effective. I thought maybe I was wasting it or the nanny was wasting it. And I just, I couldn't really for weeks, I couldn't understand why am I buying like literally twice as much dish soap. And it took a month to suddenly realize, of course I'm using that much more because we are cooking every meal at home. It's so logical, but it's just, it's a very new story that I couldn't put two and two together. Another example of something that everybody can relate to is toilet paper. I think we've all collectively agreed that there is a shortage of toilet paper because people are crazy and they are panic buying and hoarding. You'd be hard pressed to find a different explanation, except guess what? There is a different explanation that is actually true. And it's not false like the hoarding story. So toilet paper actually has really fixed supply chains with really thin margins. So it's, it's hard to change the actual production of toilet paper. And the interesting thing is that there's two kinds. There's literally two industries within the industry. There's consumer toilet paper and commercial toilet paper. And they're wildly different. Consumer and commercial don't even come from the same mills. They aren't shipped the same way. They aren't packaged the same way. They aren't consumed the same way. They aren't even, you know, actually structurally the same, you know? You can't even put one on the actual role of the other. And what's happened is not that we've doubled our purchases of consumer toilet paper. It's that all of our purchases on the industrial side. So when we use toilet paper in our offices, in Starbucks, in the public places that we frequent, all of that demand has shifted to the consumer side. And because these supply chains are so fixed, we're always going to be experiencing this shortage. And, you know, I've seen countless articles <laughs> with psychologists and experts and thinkers talking about how all of this is panic buying and it's all emotionally driven, but nobody stopped to explain that there is actually a very, very logical market reason for this. And wow, that just shows you how blind we are to the actual truth and the realities of what we're living. Like that's what I think is the most interesting about this pandemic 
And what we're all experiencing right now is that we are so habituated to our old narratives, like how much dish, dish soap I buy, <laughs> that it's, it's hard to overestimate like how much of an impact it's going to be on us mentally as we start to kind of deconstruct these beliefs about ourselves and our, and our consumption. Yeah, I think there's so much going on right now that we'll only ever really come to some level of understanding from the benefit of hindsight. Like we'll only really understand what's going on after all of this has happened and we can really kind of get a macro view because right now all of our attention is focused inward and on ourselves. And I think what's kind of interesting about this is we talk about toilet paper, but when you kind of take a step back and you take a pause, you can sort of look at it. But, you know, the whole point is that we're not in our offices anymore. And we're kind of being forced to take a step back and look at our work differently too. And I think that's particularly interesting. You know, we talk about how home is changing us. I think the way we look at work and our relationship to work is really going to shift. You know, for a lot of people, they are realizing that they are not in as secure a position as they thought they were. And they may even have a great amount of savings, but just their, their livelihood is uh, much, more, um, much more ephemeral than they thought they were. And so I think what's what's really fascinating here is that sort of like, what is the collective mindset around work and how is that going to change? Like, how are we going to walk away from this? Because they're talking about 30, 32% unemployment in this country, which is by a very significant margin, the highest it could ever be. I think the Dust Bowl depression was 25% unemployment. And so now, you know, people are having a real amount of time to pause, look back and think about their livelihoods. And my assumption out of this is we're going to realize that actually what we really, we're going to be much more intentional again about what we look for in our work. We're going to look for purpose because we can't, even in industries that we thought were indestructible and couldn't, couldn't be moved, there's still a level of insecurity. And so we, we maybe can't find security anywhere, but what we can find is purpose. And so I think that maybe in the beginning, we're going to be rushing to kind of refill our bank accounts and get a paycheck. But gradually, we're going to start looking for more meaning in our work. This was a trend that we were seeing well before this even happened as the corporate world changed and people's identities changed and we embraced work more and more as part of our identities. Then it kind of became a stand in for more meaningful things. And we were starting to look for, for jobs with meaning. But I think we were looking for jobs with meaning that would tell us that we were valuable, right? Mm -hmm. That we meant something to the world. I think after this, that meaning will change. We're not looking for meaning that tells us we're valuable. I think we're going to be more looking for meaning that tells us that we are actually providing value. And that's two different things. You know, so far what we've described in terms of like the change in the meaning of work and the change in our relationships to our homes, it kind of sounds like this is kind of accelerating the growing up of a generation. I think you and I are generally talking about millennials and Gen Z who yeah. will probably be the most impacted by this. Mm -hmm. I think as we talk, we're going to see that really the big theme behind this pandemic and how it will affect business and culture is acceleration. It's going yeah. to accelerate a lot of behaviors that were kind of at a tipping point. It's going to accelerate a lot of technologies a lot of organizational structures, not just within our companies, but within our societies and within mm -hmm. our homes, and a lot of identities and roles in society as well. Yeah. Something I also want to talk about um, when it comes to work is leadership. So I think we've seen every week more and more leaders are coming to the surface and talking publicly about 
what they're dealing with. And you see different leaders handling it differently. And I want to bring up something here. I think we all know that like the rule of thumb right now is if you're a brand, you have to show compassion and empathy for your user. That's like a baseline. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is you really, really cannot show compassion and be empathetic unless you're willing to also be vulnerable. Mm. Because compassion without vulnerability is really just grandstanding in my point of view. I saw two really good examples of this. So the first really good example was Arnie Sorensen, who is the CEO of, is the CEO of Marriott. And he was one of the very, very first, I think just two and a half weeks ago, but it feels like a freaking lifetime ago. The very first to come and make a public statement. I saw it on Twitter. And I'm going to tell you, honestly, I don't think it was that good of a speech. I think I would have expected something else, but it was so well received and the thread through every piece of feedback about this great leader who was leading with such compassion and empathy, actual words that people were using was the fact that he was very vulnerable in that talk. First of all, he opened with vulnerability. He talked, it was the first time a lot of people had seen him without hair because he's been going through chemo. And he talked about that upfront before he even addressed the issue. Um, and he made it clear that his publicist told him it might not be a good idea, but he said that this is the way he wanted to do it, just be an authentic version of himself because he really needed to talk directly to, to his audience. He showed kind of emotional vulnerability. He became teary in the talk. He was very honest about the fact that this business was on the verge of collapse in some ways. I mean, this was lauded as a, a beacon of amazing, excellent leadership in a time of crisis. And let's not forget, we're talking about Marriott. I think I have seen workers protesting Marriott in front of those hotels in maybe five or six cities in my yeah. lifetime. Yeah, me too. Like this is a, a brand that is not known for good leadership. It's not known for treating its employees well. It's not known for, for being the first to deal with a crisis, <laughs> but it was his vulnerability. It just shows you how much vulnerability can carry the effort in being compassionate. One other example that I thought was amazing. So not too many people know Robin Burson, but she's the founder of Parsley Health. Her personal brand isn't that big, but if you follow Parsley, you know who she is because she's a big part of kind of like their front-facing communications. and. She just had a baby and I think she only had a baby like three months ago. And on her personal Instagram, she said something that floored me. She posted a picture of herself holding her child and she said that her and her husband had made the difficult decision to start sleep training their baby. I think only at two months old. I might be wrong. Don't quote me on this, even though I'm, I'm, I'm recording this podcast. But let me tell you, to tell people that you are sleep training your child at such a young age, even though medically it's fine, is really opening yourself up to attack, especially if you are in functional medicine, which is all about parenting and child rearing with, I think, more leniency and compassion while we're talking about it than more traditional forms of parenting. And she said she had to do it because she wasn't sleeping for two months you know, we're in the middle of a crisis. She had to lead a team. She was no longer functional. And as a doctor, she's expected to have all the answers. And I don't want us to overlook the significance of what she did here, because when she opened herself up to something so personal and so debated among people in, in that space, 
she was actually giving other women who were dealing with the struggle of child rearing in a quarantine, which is a struggle for real, by the way, permission to make compromises. That was a gesture of generosity. The fact that she did that for other people, that was an amazing sign of leadership. But that was also an example of when you add vulnerability into the compassion and empathy equation, it becomes exponentially more powerful. Yeah. You know, when we talk about purpose-driven brands, like most brands are trending towards this. And to your point earlier about acceleration, this is rapidly accelerating brands that create purpose, especially the ones that are attracting talent. And how do you differentiate between all of these brands if they're all, in, all aligning around purpose? And really, leadership is it. Leadership is the only way that you can really differentiate. And now I think it's so interesting that it's really putting companies to the test. There are those that have really strong leadership and are able to kind of show that vulnerability, but really show what they care about by the way that they treat their employees in this versus brands that just do it as lip service. They do it for a marketing point. They you know, won't give their employees hazard pay, even though they're really putting their employees at risk. Like, those are the companies that you really start to see kind of who's who, as Warren Buffett puts it, when the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming naked. Like that's what's happening right now is we're really putting leadership to the test. And I think we're going to come out of this with a much uh, deeper vocabulary to understand like what good leadership is and what it looks like and be able to align ourselves towards it. I do want to mention too that everybody is paying attention to leadership right now. I had interviews with some consumers for our clients over the last couple of weeks um, in flyover states. So these are people that you would think, you know, if they come from more conservative backgrounds, they're they're a little less concerned about like the activist employee story, a little more concerned about the market story. Like that's that's a that's a gross oversimplification and generalization. But I will say I was surprised with the kinds of things I was hearing from people in these states that were saying that they were paying close attention to what different airlines were doing as they laid off and furloughed their employees, what different major consumer brands were doing, what different major financial brands were doing. And these people, you know, were actually actively changing their brand allegiances based on how these different companies were responding to the crisis and the fact that they were downsizing. So, you know, people are paying attention and, you know, a smaller note, like everything is, is political now. And I don't mean that, that like, you know, people are kind of like voting with their dollars along party lines. I don't, that's what's interesting about this time period right now. It's, I think changed all of that. For example, Everlane had to lay off a bunch of employees and there was some, uh, some kerfuffle about how it seemed like they were using these layoffs to mask the fact that they wanted to fire some employees that were trying to unionize. And Bernie Sanders actually commented on that. And I think he commented kind of aggressively saying that these were like really terrible practices by a company. And Everlane was forced to respond or, or chose to respond by saying, we're suffering right now and this is something that we have to do. And I think that could have been avoided if they were just a little more careful about the way that they had handled that communication and maybe addressed it with some sort of vulnerability and a bit more compassion up front. I mean, maybe that's a, a bigger what if question, but the fact is people are watching closer than ever. Like what a leader does in communicating to its employees has become such an outward facing thing now. Mm -hmm. 
This reminds me of something else. So we have a client called Naked Poppy and they're a clean beauty brand and you know, they're amazing, like all the companies that we work with. But they have a founder, her name is Jalet, and she did something interesting last week. She showed vulnerability in her communications. She sent an email out to her audience and she said, listen, I know we're all suffering right now. And, you know, I'm living through this pandemic just like you guys are, but I do know something about crises. And she went on to tell her story about dealing with cancer and what she learned from that experience and kind of imparting to people her wisdom on what they could expect, because we all kind of want some sort of like expectation of what's coming up, right? It was done in a really sincere way. And let me tell you why this was so smart. One, she got a world of responses from her users that immediately felt connected to her, not just people who had similar life experiences. I mean, who hasn't been touched by cancer, even just by someone that you love, but because they responded to the fact that she had some honest, sincere insight, even though like she's never led people through a pandemic before. But another great thing that it did was that it actually opened up the communication. So when people started responding, she was able to get a snapshot of where people's minds were. And I, I, I want to explain why that's important. It's the suddenness of all of this that's insane. It's the fact that this happened so quickly and that we're coming to terms with it more and more every week that just when you think you've wrapped your head around it, a new week comes and you think, damn, I was so naive last week, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> the mood changes every week. So for example, I think week one, we were all kind of in shock and denial. There were lots of memes about social distancing, but lots of optimism about connecting virtually. I know I got tons of texts from people. We were just starting to do like uh, FaceTimes with our friends, lots of messages like, hey, I hope you're well. You know, that was week one. I think by the second week, we had kind of like reached the height of digital connection. It was really novel. Like we were really into apps like House Party and Zoom and Dial Up. And these apps were all being touted as like social currency, you know, all of a sudden on like influencers, Instagram feeds, you would see snapshots of like the house parties or the zoom parties that they were having with their friends. And then week three, which was last week or the week before, however you, you're calculating your, your days in quarantine. I think we all got less phone calls. I think there were less check-ins. I think we kind of had all gotten over the novelty of virtual connection a lot less Instagram stories, and I follow a lot of people. Chris Delia made a fantastic joke that I think said, oh, great, one influencer I don't give a shit about is going live with another Instagram influencer I don't give a shit about, which I think characterized like the fact that like people didn't care anymore about that. And we all went inward, became domestic. Like This was the birth of the sourdough boom. To the point where like we were having sourdough shortage or excuse me yeast shortages and flour shortages for some reason the week after that was all about playlists like every brand was pushing a playlist i got a glossier playlist i think some of the streetwear brands i was following sent me playlists like it was strange playlists were like everywhere and now me and you are recording this on a monday well tuesday in the morning technically this is going to publish on thursday and i guarantee Things are going to feel different by then too. So this is my point. You have to constantly be reading your audience. You know, you can try doing it by social listening. You can watch users' behaviors. But sometimes just putting something out there and seeing what you get back, like what Jale did with Naked Poppy, will help you read the room. And again, that's important because the room's mood is constantly changing way faster than you think. Yeah, it, now is probably the single best time ever 
to start experimenting with how you connect with your audience, how you build your audience, and the format through which you're having that conversation. You know, you've got so many different people, so many celebrities and influencers trying out new things, brands too. So you've got Jimmy Fallon reading kids' books. You've got Questlove and D-Nice doing live DJ sets and a whole bunch of like fitness influencers doing live classes. Like we are starting to collectively like create replacements and new formats to replace the needs and, and kind of services that, that we used before and kind of find comfort in these things. And so there's a lot of new things going on and we're very, very open to it right now because everything we've been doing has been disrupted. And so as a brand, like you can really be forgiven for, you know, taking a risk and it not working out. So, you know, it, it's a fantastic time for that. But I think this is kind of telling us a slightly deeper story about what's happening here is that as we start to fulfill these needs online as opposed to offline, we start to find equivalents for events that were in person that now we're doing collectively through video. What's happening is we're starting to see the internet become more and more embedded into like critical infrastructure. Like now there are huge incentives to do kind of obviously education online, but medicine too, government services, a lot of things are going to start to move online and become part of that critical infrastructure. And so what's going to, there's a lot of things that's going to change with that. But one of the first things is that it's going to change the policy conversation about the internet. It's going to start to be given a lot more rights. And we're probably going to see a lot of disruption with the major internet service providers as it kind of becomes recontextualized. And, you know, if access to critical infrastructure like medicine and education is prerequisite on internet, then accessibility is going to be something that the government is really going to have to mandate. But I think what's really telling about the shift towards kind of the operating system of our daily lives being online is that it really creates a phenomenal incentive for automation. Like if you imagine all of these services go online, suddenly there's all this new surface area that can be automated. So scheduling and kind of logistics, setting up appointments, billing, all of these things that there used to be someone in front of a desk, they can do online. You're going to have a lot of doctors and other services that can be slightly improved. Like if you can imagine a doctor with a bit of AI can maybe boost their efficiency by 10 maybe 20%, right? You're not replacing the job, you're just making them slightly more efficient. Maybe you're just saving them time, maybe you're helping suggest diagnoses that can speed up their workflow. The point is, is that if you can make them 20% more efficient, in theory, you would get rid of 20% of the jobs. Now with doctors, that's not gonna happen because there's a huge demand that isn't already being met, but in other fields like lawyers and other areas where there isn't such kind of um, static demand, we may find that automation here is going to really start to kick in. And so what coronavirus may be when we look back is the very beginning of the automation curve really turning and really starting to be something that's going to absorb a lot of jobs. And so we're going to see that like companies are really going to have to understand their value and probably streamline a lot of things that are outside of that. I have a feeling we're going to look back at the coronavirus this period and we're going to see it as the birthing point for a lot of huge cultural shifts. And one of them will be automation. Like coronavirus might be when a lot of new kind of paradigms and norms and like culture shifting advancements were actually like set into motion. Yeah. And let's not forget too that a recession is the best time to do this. There's no downside, no bad PR for automating because all the incentives are pointing in that direction. Like you can really cut a lot of corners with these things like now's the time and so you know you won't feel it 
but then suddenly afterwards there'll just be this kind of lingering bottom line where like the unemployment won't quite get back as fast and we'll start to see and this will gradually accelerate but this this right now this is the turning point so obviously like if we weren't already aware a great deal of uncertainty in the market and what you were saying before which i, I kind of want to um, summarize again here but you were saying it at the top of the the discussion was we're going through a great deal of change right now but once we kind of leave this period and we start a period of healing, there will be just as much change during that time as well. Yeah. And we'll only realize the change that we've already gone through then. We'll only realize when we look back that, wow, this was the time when everything started going online. There's suddenly all of these government services, all of these company services suddenly by by merit of going online had access to so many more automation tools. Like this is when we're making that transition. So while all of this is happening in industry, mm -hmm. at the same time, this is something you and I have discussed, the consumer, as industry is basically, I think, ramping upwards and kind of accelerating into the digital realm, you know, especially like the laggards, like government, like you said, while all that is going up, the consumer is literally free falling down to the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. So we definitely had reached self-actualization in a lot of ways. And now we're back down to like basic survival needs again. Yeah, we're really, well, we're at safety needs, not quite at physiological needs, although, you know, we're getting scarily close to that. But, you know, definitely brands that played the esteem playbook, like Supreme, Away, Louis Vuitton, even Swell Bottles, you know, those brands are not relevant anymore. Like when I'm worried about getting enough toilet paper, <laughs> I couldn't care less about those things. So we're definitely, we've, we've changed paradigm. And now, you know, we're looking for safety, we're looking for stability, and a lot of that is expressed through looking for comfort. So the types of content we consume, the types of content that we're creating on social media, you know, TikTok, especially in China, has been inundated with comedy content and people making other people laugh, and it's kind of a collective coping mechanism. But definitely the ways and the types of things we're consuming, I, I would expect out of this that probably nostalgia is going to be something we're going to be looking for, because for a lot of people, nostalgia represents a lot of safety, security, and comfort. And there was already a lot of nostalgia like in our culture as it was, right? You know, look at like fashion and all of the the retro designs, the fact that like you see licensed band tees from like the 60s and 70s everywhere. Like, every girl that goes to Coachella, she's like wearing a tee with the doors or the Grateful Dead on it, even though like I don't know that she fully understands what she's wearing. Or the fact that Stranger Things like literally gripped a huge audience of viewers because it delivered that nostalgic promise nostalgia in design, in fonts, typography, and colors, and, you know, a lot of um, DTC brands, there's a whole faction of DTC brands that were playing with nostalgia. You know, we were already at a tipping point with nostalgia, but it seems like you're saying, like, we're going to go super deep into it. Given the, the needs that it fulfills in terms of comfort and that feeling of safety, there's going to be an increased appetite for it, for sure. Okay. Another thing that I think I've noticed about the hierarchy and our kind of like really rapid fall to the bottom is that I've noticed it kind of has revealed a lot of cultural lies. So another thing about Maslow's hierarchy is I feel like as we've like swiftly come to the bottom of the pyramid again, it's revealed a lot of cultural lies that we're coming to grips with. Just as an example, I've written about this in the past. There, there was an app called Digit. I don't know if it's still around, but like 
it was a savings app. So instead of actually having you save money, it had this algorithm that would siphon off little amounts of money from your account every day based on what your spending was so that you would save. And that way, you know, you would feel like the responsible person that you thought you were without actually having to be a responsible person. So that's just an example. But let's let's talk about like some of the gaps that I'm seeing. And I think a lot of times these gaps show up in language. This thing about calling doctors, nurses, and teachers heroes is fascinating. I'm not the first person to talk about this, but calling these people heroes is is great in some ways. It helps unify our, our society, but it's actually also really destructive in other ways. So think about it. When you call these people heroes, you really need, leave no room for them to feel fear. You don't leave room for them to discuss how difficult the job is. And it makes it really easy to overlook that these are human beings that need more support than just a thank you or a shout out or a meme or like a sign out of a, out of a living room window. It doesn't let them be weak. And I think that's profoundly unfair. There was a really telling example of this. There's a woman named Dr. Rebecca Lawrence. I think she's a psychologist. I'm not sure if she's a psychologist or an actual like medical doctor, but she went on Twitter recently and she posted something that went viral. And I'm just going to read it like word for word. She said, I'm going to say something unpopular. I wish I wasn't a doctor. I wish I wasn't terrified at what I may be asked to do. I wish I could self-isolate. Sorry. She knew that this was going to be met with, with a lot of pushback and criticism. And it was. It, this went viral. And if you scroll through these comments, a lot of them are pretty negative. People are angry that she is weak. People are angry that she's scared. And when you call people heroes, it perpetuates the myth that they're not allowed to feel these things. Now, for teachers, it's a little different. To call a teacher a hero is to kind of erase the fact that she is treated very unfairly in really unfavorable circumstances. And it's so disingenuous, like even saying teachers are our heroes, all these moms, all these celebrities who had to homeschool their kids for a week are now calling teachers heroes on Instagram and on Twitter. It's disingenuous because we all know there is no way in hell that these teachers are going to get paid more when we come out the other side of this. There's no way they're going to get more respect. There's no way they're going to get more support. Absolutely nothing will change. It's kind of like a slap in the face. And I just, it's such an interesting thing that you, I, you start to see these cracks more and more in times of crises. I think you see this with other expressions like strong black woman. It, it, it absolutely erases the suffering of those women. I think even a phrase like tiger mom, for example, you know, even though I, that comes from someplace different, it was kind of like self-ascribed because I think there was a book called Tiger Mom by an Asian American woman who actually called herself that. But also, again, erases or avoids the fact that like motherhood, you have to be very vigilant if you want your child to be successful and happy in this world. And it's all that burden is placed on the mother. The mother is always the one that is responsible for the thriving of their child. And if their child isn't thriving, then it's her fault. And here's what's really happening. Here's what's really that what really matters here. The human instinct is always to reframe the ugly as something more palatable. But the longer this pandemic and social isolation lasts, I think the less and less we're going to be able to actually do this and lie to ourselves about these things. And the mood is just going to keep shifting. Like these phrases and kind of like images protect us from the, the carnage underneath all of it and the unfairness 
and the inequity, but they can only work for so long. Mm. And I wonder what's going to happen when they start falling apart. When the word heroes, when people start to realize it's bullshit and it doesn't do what it used to do. Yeah. There was a great article in Politico about coronavirus and professor of political science, uh, Mark Lawrence Trad, had a great point here that maybe after all of this, what we may find is that our sense of patriotism may change. So after 9-11, you know, the soldiers were the heroes, you know, they went out and shot the enemy. And as he sort of says, uh, as he put it, you can't shoot a virus. And what we may find is that actually patriotism becomes sort of demilitarized and instead focuses on the service providers that kind of really protect us and becomes more about less about the enemy and more about the collective. And so we may kind of change our identity around patriotism may change a little bit and we may sort of see this through a different lens. And so I think maybe at a values level, these things will shift. But the problem is to really fix a lot of these challenges is a structural governmental issue. And that's something that is going to be much harder to do. But I think at the end of this, is there's going to be a lot more tension about it because even now, you know, there's so many videos coming out about doctors in New York who are literally using trash bags to protect themselves. You know, they're, they're risking their health and they have literally nothing medical to protect themselves. And so there's, there's a lot going on here. And, and you're right in the sense that we use the term hero, but, you know, very rapidly, I think our understanding is going to change and we're really going to start seeing this as a tragedy almost that these, these people who are risking a lot are absolutely not protected, you know, and maybe we, we value them culturally as heroes, but we certainly don't treat them that way. Yeah, what you're saying right now reminds me of something when we were doing work with a media brand that served veterans. It was a content brand for veterans. We found in our research that really veterans were allowed to occupy three identities and they could never be more than one at a time. And it was the hero, the villain, or the victim. And we ascribe these really limiting roles to people. And they're roles that really only come into play in times of crises like this. It reminds me also of something that I think a lot of people may have read, which was David Brooks's opinion piece in the New York Times recently. The title had something to do with the word plague, but I think he was describing the pandemic like a plague. But he was saying that what's interesting about the coronavirus is that it's really hit us where we're the most vulnerable and in a very surgical way, like exactly where we're the most vulnerable. So, you know, we're divided as a nation, but now this epidemic or this pandemic makes us even more separate from one another. We define ourselves by our careers, but now those careers have basically evaporated overnight. We're what he calls morally inarticulate, which is an awesome phrase, (laughs) but now we have to actually have very difficult moral discussions. And that's what these stories around being a hero and phrases around our identities, those are also part of the moral discussions that are difficult to have that we're probably going to have to start having soon. Oh, I mean, right now, we're at a point now, especially in New York, where, you know, like doctors are having to be given impossible situations. You have two patients that are both critical that you have to choose who gets the ventilator. That is happening more and more and more. And like, can you imagine you're in a rush and there's so much going on? You're exhausted. You've been working 14 hour shifts for weeks on end. You're worried about your own safety, you're worried about the safety of your friends. And then, you know, suddenly you're liable for so many things because you're in a situation where you're having to triage in real time. So like multiple times a day. I mean, it's an incredibly difficult situation. And I 
I think we're going to have to start really seeing this differently because that's a very, very complicated moral conversation that we are by in no way ready to have at a societal level, but we're being forced to have it. And the big question here, I think, for people is like, so how how do we as individuals, how do we as brands solve this problem? You know, I don't know that it's the role of brands to solve these things. I could see later on with brands that have like actual alignment in these areas where it's true to like their values and the actual product and DNA of the brand that they could start to have some of these discussions. But there's a bigger point here. It's the fact that everything you do right now is a signal. Mm-hmm. Everything you do is politicized. The fact that Everlane had to lay off, I think it was, I think it was like 44 employees would have been a run of the mill thing, right? But the fact that they laid off a handful of employees that were also trying to unionize at that time made this something that Bernie Sanders actually responded to. Bernie Sanders felt the need to say something about Everlane's layoffs at a time where you would think any layoffs would be forgiven. And it just shows you that nobody is going by unscathed. Like everything you do is saying something about what it is you believe in and your values as a brand and values have just become politicized. So some brand, I just want to mention, you know, there's different ways for brands to approach these things. Like you can be a brand that does well, like you could be like Zara that's making scrubs or LVMH that's making and distributing free hand sanitizer. Now it's, it's not, I I don't think these are just kind of like, um, you know, ploys or you know uh, ways to feel like they are part of the the larger conversation these are definitely sincere acts but what's interesting is the fact that they actually converted their operations to start producing these things it's interesting because i feel like it tells me that these companies aren't just do-gooders but they see themselves as custodians of the people they actually are here to protect the well-being of the people And if you hear that, that sounds like how you would describe a government. It's an example of how governments and brands, like the line is really blurring. It's a really elevated position for these brands and it works. I think those brands did it really, really well. I think other brands like Ritual giving away three free months of vitamins to healthcare workers, that was great. You see a lot of LA clothing brands have pivoted their operations to making face masks. And even still now, face masks are selling out everywhere. But, you know, a lot of them, are only selling them in a buy one, give one model, which I think is also great. You know, I think this is kind of like the V1 of what it's going to mean to do something as a brand during this pandemic. But I do want to talk about taking it a step further. So, you know, I like what brands like Cameo are doing. And this is an interesting one. So just, just hang on with me. Cameo, if you don't know who they are, It's a platform where you can, like literally every celebrity, I'm not joking, every A-list to Z-list celebrity is on Cameo and you just pay a few bucks and ask them to like, you know, create like a video greeting on their smartphones for your friend's birthday or for your anniversary. And it's literally just, you're paying 10, 20, I mean, I don't know what it is, but it's it's, it's a super cheap amount for like 15 second clip. So like Gilbert Gottfried, the comedian, is actually one of their top performing celebrities. And he's, I don't know if you'd call him a D-lister, but he's not an A-lister. And he makes like, he's described making $4,500 in 30 minutes. And he was making upwards of six figures a year. 
just spending a fractional amount of his time making these videos. This is what Cameo is. It's a really interesting marketplace that actually has been working. And it's like been one of those breakout brands that like you probably haven't heard of if you're outside of Silicon Valley, but they're doing really, really well. So, you know, they, you know, what, what can they do? What's their product? And what they've decided to do is launch something called Cameo Cares. And it's basically like a three-day virtual summit or three-day virtual event where they're going to be raising money with having all of these D-listers come on and do things like give behind the scenes access or um, talk live from their living rooms or play music, do a comedy hour, do like an exercise session. And what works here is the belief behind Cameo is that one person's D-lister is another person's favorite celebrity in the world. And so if that's like their core value, giving people access to these favorite celebrities in kind of a very nostalgic way, like you said, that feel good nostalgic way. These are celebrities from your childhood, celebrities from your past. They're almost never current celebrities. <laughs> and kind of like, it, it kind of feels like a new telethon, like what, what the modern telethon mm -hmm. is. Although I don't know, because it hasn't happened yet. So I'm not sure what it's going to feel like in terms of format. But like, it just shows you that they're, they found what their brand was about and they aligned it with actions that would benefit people during this crisis in a very on-brand way. And I think that makes it super, super effective. It lets them do something. You know, you, gentlemen, you were talking earlier about new you know, experimenting with new tech mm -hmm. platforms and, yep. and new ways of communicating, they're able to do that. And I think this was smart. This was thoughtful because people want this connection right now. They want human and imperfect. And what says human and imperfect more than a D-list celebrity on your phone, <laughs> right? Th these were some examples that I just wanted to make sure we got out there of like brands that are thinking of creative ways of, you know, not being opportunistic, not being, you know, not using this as a way to tout themselves, but using their resources in the best possible way. Because sending an email to people that says, hey, we're here for you is not the best use of your resources. Mm -hmm. But these examples are good uses of resources. Yeah, that's a great point. So if Cameo is about nostalgia and that kind of connection, then I think we have to talk about escapism. And the best place to look at that is online gaming. Like online gaming is really spiked because of this situation. And I don't think people really appreciate how significant this is. If you look at this sort of younger Gen Z generation who are kind of in their late teenage years and like now is when they're really forming the kind of normative social behaviors and kind of what the de facto is for their generation. like. Online gaming is a huge part of this, like more and more. And it's a very social activity too. You know, I think nowadays something like 70% of gaming is considered like a social activity with more than one friend. So it's really kind of like, this is the way that that generation is socializing. And we may not feel it now, but there are repercussions of this. And, and being kind of forced to almost exclusively socialize in these contexts, that is going to that's going to have a ripple effect for that generation. And I think that maybe in five, 10 years, when Gen Z, certainly the younger end of Gen Z, comes into their purchasing power, brands are going to have to meet them in new places and in new norms. And I don't think they can underestimate the significance of difference between millennials and Gen Z. Like that generational change is happening more and more rapid. And Cameo may work really, really well for a millennial audience, but I wonder if for a Gen Z audience, they're looking for a different kind of relationship and a different kind of dialogue. It may be much more kind of peer to peer 
and much more maybe tribal. Like, I don't think we really know what that looks like, but when we're talking about brand and the repercussions of, of the coronavirus, I don't think we can underestimate that, you know, it's having an effect to consumers right now, but there's a bracket uh, of people who it's going to be much more foundational in how it impacts them. So again, we're talking about acceleration. You know, yeah. this is going to accelerate the divergence between two generations, the millennial generation and Gen Z, mm -hmm. faster than it would have happened otherwise. It's funny what you're describing. <laughs> I think when people ask me how we're doing, um, when we get texts from friends just checking in on us, you know, hey, what's up? How are you guys holding up in there? I tell people that I've been questioning the nature of my life decisions and you've been playing Grand Theft Auto. Like that. <laughs> That's how we've been coping. And I think a lot of couples and other people can can also speak to the fact that there are stages to this and yeah. we're all going through different stages. So it is 1.15 in the morning. And I think this would be a good time to wrap this up with our personal segment at the end. And I actually just came up with a question for you. Mm -hmm. And I think we can both answer it. Let's end positively. What has been your most positive memory so far or experience? in our new reality. I can't think of it like a specific memory off the top of my head. I think there's a lot of shifts in our routines that have actually been really nice, um, particularly spending more time with the kids. But I think to me, I've kind of noticed this realization of just sort of how we've collectively really started paying attention to how much we value our communities and how much we value our friends. Like it, it's become very, very much aware of how much that connection means to us because it's kind of been withheld from us. And so it's been nice to see, I think, you know, with immediate friends of mine, but I think just in the news as well, like we're starting to realize just how important it is. And I hope that maybe, you know, at the other end of this, that we have a renewed sense of value in community. And that, that might actually be a very positive thing. You know, when you have a unifying kind of enemy, um, you have something you can all rally together against and kind of, there's a collectivity to that. And that actually might be uh, really quite valuable. So that's me. So what about you? What, what's kind of a, a good memory out of all of this? I, I think like you, maybe I want to revise the question. It, it's not so much a memory, but it's more like a realization. I was on a call with somebody like last week and I was late to the call and I apologized. And she said, oh, it's okay. There's no sorry in a quarantine. And I thought, wow, I'm going to use that. And I've been using, I use it a lot. <laughs> I use it a lot to forgive myself for a lot of like little things that I just can't control because there's so little that we can control in our lives right now, whether it's like work or family or home or just kind of like keeping good mental hygiene or kind of sticking to your routines, you know, all those things that take so much willpower during the day. But I like telling other people that like, I've mentioned that to a few people now and like people love hearing it. It's a gift. It's mm -hmm. a really strong message that I think people kind of like actually package in their brains and pull out later. It's like a tool that people have used. It's like a, a device or a vehicle. And that's what I want to give to people listening. There are no sorries in a quarantine. You pull that out when you need it and you use it as often as you need to. It's a magical phrase. It can only do good things.
If you like this episode, share it with a friend. If you really like this episode, sign up for our newsletter at conceptbureau.com forward slash insights. We share a lot more than just our podcast. I also publish articles on brand strategy. We have videos, a lot of great discussions. If you're on Instagram or Twitter, follow me at triple jazz. That's T-R-I-P-L-E-J-A-S. I share my daily thoughts on brand strategy and culture. Today I did an AMA on brand strategy and answered a lot of people's questions about their companies and what we're seeing in the marketplace. So come join the discussion. And if you'd like to see all of my writing, I'm on Medium. Just find me under Jasmine Bina.